0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 86. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on August 29th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. For weeks now, I've been anticipating a Kankanaa's war, a brilliantly conceived theater-wide ambush of the English settled along the James River sprung on March 22nd, 1622, just a few months more than 400 years ago. Then I sat down to write, and I realized that the useful prerequisites for this episode are very scattered, starting with the last part of episode 30, as Apple counts it, the Spanish on the Atlantic Coast, and the Strange Story of Don Luis, which dropped on July fifteenth, 2021, obviously more than a year ago. It's expecting a bit much for even our most long-standing and attentive listeners to remember all that, so this episode will consolidate the story of Opa and the most interesting speculations about him. Opa lived until 1646, when an Englishman shot him in the back. At that time, Opa Kankana was believed to be 99 or even more than 100 years old, and he had been known to the English for 37 years, since at least 1607, when John Smith was captured by his hunting party. That would put the year of his birth in the mid to late 1540s, making him just a few years younger than Sir Francis Drake. I crack me up. Opa was nothing less than an unreconstructed Native American patriot. More than 40 years ago, the great historian of colonial America, Carl Breidenbaugh, wrote that Opa deserves to, quote, rank high among the most famous American Indians with Massasoit, King Philip Pontiac, Logan the Orator, Joseph Brandt, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and Geronimo. Breidenbaugh omitted Opakankana's close relative, Wahun Sunakak, known to us as the Paramount Chief Powhatan, Powhatan because Breidenbaugh argued that Opakankana's accomplishments in defense of his people were far more important. The story of Opakankana begins with a young Indian from the region named Pequiquinio, who would have been born at almost exactly the same time as Opakankana. There are historians, including both Breidenbaugh and James Horn, whom I've quoted extensively on this podcast, various points in the Jamestown series, who argue that the two were the same man. Whether or not they were the same man, they would have known each other very well. So even if Opa Cancanoa wasn't born Paquiquinio, he would have benefited from all that Paquiquinio knew about Europeans. And that was a lot, because Paquiquinio spent a decade of his life in the upper strata of Spanish society, and even came to know King Philip II. So let's start with Paquiquinio, who became Don Luis, who may well have become Opa Cancana. Very attentive listeners will remember some of this, and I will begin with a revised version of the script I wrote more than a year ago for the last third of the aforementioned episode on Don Luis. Kids don't do this in school, but we podcasters are allowed to plagiarize ourselves. The opening paragraph of a 1988 article by Charlotte Grady, now professor of history at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut, sets the stage well. In September 1570, a small band of Spanish Jesuits sailed into an estuary of the Bahia de Santa Maria and landed in Ahakan the Spanish names for what were later called the Chesapeake Bay and the land of Virginia. There, the Jesuits established a mission on the York River among the Algonquin inhabitants, intending to convert them to Catholicism. No soldiers accompanied these missionaries for protection. Their only means of communicating with the natives was through an interpreter, an Indian from that area who had spent some time in Mexico and Spain. Quote, We will have much opportunity to exercise patience, was the sober observation of one of the Jesuits, Father Luis de Quiros, as he surveyed the shore of Ahakan before disembarking. Much opportunity, perhaps, but as it turned out, little time, for the mission was destroyed when all its members were killed by the Indians five months later. The only survivors were a boy, Alonso de Almas, And the Indian interpreter, who in fact led the attack against the unfortunate Jesuits. Thus ended the mission to Virginia. Soon after, all Jesuit activities ceased in the Spanish province of La Florida, which extended from present day Florida to Newfoundland, and which included the territory they called Ahakan. Back to me. It is the story of the translator, known to his people as Paquiquinio and eventually to the Spanish as Don Luis de Velasco, that most concerns us. Our history of Pacoquinio begins in the summer of 1561, when the Spanish ship Santa Catalina blew into the mouth of the Chesapeake in front of a storm. Santa Catalina had been sent to the region by Angel de Villafanier, whom very attentive listeners will recall had succeeded to the command of Tristan de Luna's mission of 1559, which had been ordered to settle Pensacola on the Gulf Coast and then march across to Santa Elena, today's Paris Island, and set up a base there. The crew of the Santa Catalina did the usual thing, which was to round up a couple of young Indian men. Supposedly, they came on board voluntarily. Breidenbaugh cites a narrative that says, quote, among these Indians came a chief who brought his son, who was a fine presence and bearing, That son, Paquiquinio, was perceived by the Spanish as of noble rank, and the agent of the Santa Catalina, Antonio Velazquez, decided to bring him back to Philip II's court in Madrid. Supposedly, the chief gave his consent after the Spanish pledged to return him with much wealth and many garments. Consented or not, Paquiquinio would turn out to be a remarkable young man. Now quoting from Anna Brickhouse's book, The Unsettlement of America, Translation, Interpretation, and the Story of Don Luis de Velasco. Velasquez eventually apprehended Paquiquenio's potential role in a familiar story, an exotic arrival turned favored royal subject, and accordingly requested and received an allowance for suitable clothing for the naked Ahakan native. Over the next five months, Paquiquinio stayed at the king's court, where he appears to have caught Philip's attention and earned his esteem. Juan de la Carrera, a Jesuit priest who knew Paquiquinio ten years later, observed that he had been educated at the court of King Philip II and had received from him many favors. Another priest noted that even by 1570, the native traveler was sponsored directly by the royal court. Our king in Spain had ordered him an allowance and clothed him, and the native knew so much that he confessed and received communion. All accounts agree that Pacoquinio was both highly fluent and very crafty, and that he became, at some point over the course of his transatlantic education, very ingenious in his argumentation, very subtle in his reasons, a not only proficient but highly effective speaker of Spanish, able to convince and persuade a variety of powerful interlocutors. Back to me. By the next year, 1562, this eloquent Indian had persuaded Philip, the most powerful man in all Christendom, to send him back to his home on the Chesapeake, notwithstanding Villafañe's report to the crown that the region wasn't worth settling. There not being a regular schedule of sailings from Seville to Virginia, Peco and a baptized and multilingual Mexican Indian he had befriended on his travels made their way to Mexico, presumably then to catch the next ship to head up the Atlantic coast. There he was baptized and renamed Don Luis de Velasco, after the then governor of New Spain. Unfortunately for Don Luis... Baptism greatly complicated his ambition to return home. The local priests intervened and declared that Don Luis could not now go home without religious supervision. The concern, which was almost certainly genuine, was that apostasy was much worse in the eyes of God than paganism. A fallen away Christian would be condemned to hell. Arrangements had to be made to protect Don Luis from that risk— by giving him the appropriate ecclesiastical support. Don Luis, nevertheless, grew in his understanding of Spanish language, culture, and politics and continued to lobby for a return to the region of the Chesapeake. By 1566, he had persuaded the local clergy of the merits of an evangelical mission to his homeland. Rather than a big military expedition to the Chesapeake, then being pushed by Pedro Menendez de Aviles, the governor of Florida, founder of St. Augustine and murderer of Frenchmen, the Spanish authorities decided to send two Dominican friars and 30 soldiers with Don Luis, his translator. The mission of 1566 failed under ambiguous circumstances. The Dominicans got to the area, but from the vantage point of the ocean, Don Luis did not immediately recognize the land as his home, and a storm came and pushed the ship far out to sea. They made the decision to take the westerlies to Spain rather than Havana. Menendez's brother-in-law and, it must be said, propagandists disparaged the friars for being too soft and afraid. This might have been the case, but as we have seen elsewhere, the Dominican friars of New Spain were, as a group anyway, some of the toughest men of faith the world has ever seen. In Breidenbaugh's reckoning, this failure to make landfall at Ajaca would have been a great disappointment to Paco Quineo, Don Luis, catalyzing his resentment of the Spanish. Professor Brickhouse offers an alternative explanation, that Don Luis, finally on his way home, subverted the expedition because he was, justifiably, worried that the 30 soldiers would kill his people. It's a reasonable speculation, for in his now five years among the Spanish and Indians from around the Americas who had suffered under them, Don Luis had good reason to fear Spanish soldiers visiting his homeland. At this time, the various Christian brotherhoods concerned with converting Indians to Christianity were coming around to the point of view that the ugly and unchristian behavior of Spanish soldiers, rather than Indian reticence, was their biggest obstacle. Leading Jesuits in particular documented the depredations of Spanish soldiers— and wrote letters complaining about their violence and depravity. This irritated Pedro Menendez to no end and brought him into bureaucratic and political conflict with the Society of Jesus. The respected and worldly Don Luis, now back in Spain, almost certainly understood this dynamic and almost certainly exploited it. He would have seen an opportunity to go home without any soldiers, if only the Jesuits got their way. Eventually, Father Juan Baptista de Segura, the leader of the Jesuits in the West Indies, secured permission to go to the Chesapeake with a handful of priests and set up a mission. Menendez offered Segura a hundred soldiers for protection, which Segura declined. By 1570, Don Luis had his ticket home, along with Segura and another priest, three Jesuit brothers, three layman teachers of the order, and a Spanish Creole boy Alonso de Almas. They had no tough men to protect them, only their God. The expedition left Santa Elena in August 1570 and arrived at the mouth of the Chesapeake, the homeland of Don Luis, in September. They began building crude housing and a small chapel at an unknown site on the peninsula between the York River and the James, probably less than a dozen miles from the future Jamestown. The ship lingered in the river for a few days and then went back to Havana with a letter from Father Kuros, which is the only document from the mission of Ahacan. Now let's go to Professor Breidenbaugh's account, which quotes Father Kuros, quote, The Indian had pictured his country truthfully as a land of great plenty, but to their dismay the Jesuits found that for several years the natives had been afflicted by both disease and famine and were still very short of food. However, they proved very kindly, thinking as Father Quiros and Segura reported on September 12th that, quote, Don Luis had risen from the dead and come down from heaven. Likewise, two of his brothers, both caciques, that would be the Spanish word for chief in that region, received Don Luis warmly. They informed him that his elder brother had died and that a younger one was ruling. Almost certainly this was the chieftain known to history as Powhatan, quote, asserting that he had not returned to his fatherland out of a desire of earthly things, but to teach them the way to heaven, which lay an instruction in the religion of Christ our Lord. The natives heard this with little pleasure, the Reverend Chronicler reported. In a postscript to the letter quoted above, Father Queros added, Don Luis turned out as well as was hoped, he is most obedient to the wishes of Father Segura and shows deep respect to him, as also to the rest of us here, Close quote. But very shortly, probably before October 1st, the lusty young American now in the midst of his own people found the freedoms and customs of aboriginal life irresistible and reverted to old ways, openly breaking with the canon law dictum of one life in perpetuity, he immediately took to himself as many wives as the Gentiles. In the eyes of his fellow tribesmen, his conduct was both morally approved and expected of a whereon or King. But to the pious missionaries, it was clearly the wicked work of the devil. Back to me. Now we learn what happened, this time not from Father Kuros' letter, but from the subsequent testimony of the boy Alonso. Back to Professor Grady, quote, Five days after their arrival in Ahakan, Don Luis abandoned the missionaries and returned to his tribe, leaving the Jesuits without a translator. As the winter advanced, the Spaniard's situation worsened. Finally, in early February, Segura sent three of the missionaries to trade for corn with the Indians and try to persuade Don Luis to return and help them make conversions.' Don Luis did promise to return, but he and a group of Indians followed the three missionaries and killed them on February 4th before they reached the mission. Segura and the rest, except for Alonso, were killed by Don Luis and his companions at the mission five days later. The Indians then plundered the Spanish settlement, taking the missionaries' clothes and sacred vessels for saying Mass and ripping up their books and scattering them to the winds. Back to me... So how do we know all this happened? In the spring of 1571, within a couple of months of the February massacre, Brother Salcedo from Santa Elena tried to bring supplies to the mission. When his ship arrived at the mouth of the York River, they were greeted with the astonishing sight of Indians parading on the shore vested in cassocks and religious robes. Because the Indians threatened to attack them, the Spanish did not land but returned to Santa Elena. The Jesuits, understandably, feared the worst, but a rescue mission was delayed because of the political conflict with Pedro Menendez. He confiscated a first Jesuit supply ship in December 1571 to feed the starving garrisons at St. Augustine and Santa Elena. Ultimately, the next Spanish ship to visit the Chesapeake carried Menendez himself, who stopped there on his way back to Spain to investigate the fate of the Jesuits personally, presumably because he was worried he would have to answer for his failure to support the mission when confronted by Spanish Jesuits or, worse, by a long shot, King Philip. Menendez arrived at the Chesapeake in August 1572. Indians there confirmed that all the Jesuits were dead and that Alonzo was living under the protection of a nearby chief. Menendez took a bunch of hostages and demanded that the Indians surrender Alonso and Don Luis to his custody. After a few hangings from the ship's masts, the Indians coughed up Alonso, but not Don Luis. Historians speculate that Don Luis may have been too important to the Indians to surrender, or alternatively, that he fled into the interior knowing that the Spanish would want revenge. Finally, Alonso, now in hand, the Spaniards raked the Indians gathered on the shore with cannon fire before they departed. Yeah, that'll teach him. Everything we know about what happened to the mission comes from Alonso's testimony, since the only letter had been dispatched two or three days before Don Luis defected in September 1570. The gruesome story of this Creole boy who had lived among the Indians for 18 months was so graphic that it became the stuff of legend the dead Jesuits became martyrs, and in Spanish lore, Don Luis was a murderous traitor. The result was that neither the Jesuits nor the Spanish returned to settle the Chesapeake, leaving Don Luis's people free of European incursion for another 35 years, until John Smith and the Virginia Company expedition arrived to settle at Jamestown. Of course, just as Don Luis was a traitor to the Spanish, He was a patriot to his own people. His brilliance with language and high EQ, as it were, not only bought him his ticket home, but taught him that the Spanish could only be resisted through guile. In this regard, Don Luis joined a long line of Indian guides and interpreters who had delayed or misdirected the Spanish away from their own people. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that Indian guides and translators repeatedly sent Narvaez and Soto on lethal wild goose chases. The Turk led Coronado deep into Kansas, hundreds of miles away from his own people. And Indians may have misled Esteban when he scouted ahead for Friar Marcos. The supposedly reliable Indian translator Magdalena betrayed Friar Cancer at Tampa Bay. With this track record, the apparent faith of the Spanish and their supposedly friendly Indian allies looks across the centuries like folly. But maybe in the end, it reflected their own abiding faith in the power of Christian conversion. And to be fair to the Spanish, in the words of William Bradford, Tisquantum also played his own game. Although it remains to be seen in this podcast anyway, whether his motives were patriotic. There remains the question... Did Paquiquinio slash Don Luis change his name to Opa Kankana, or was he merely a contemporaneous relative of Opa Kankana? Even if the latter, it is easy for me to believe that the two of them would have known each other and would have spoken at length about Europeans in the 35 years that elapsed between the murder of the Jesuits in 1571 and the arrival of the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the discovery in 1607. Since whenever I have a choice, I much prefer the fun and interesting version of events, and it would definitely be fun and interesting if Opa Cancana was the same person who had lived among the Spanish for 10 years, let's look at the admittedly circumstantial evidence in support of that proposition. For starters, Don Luis was clearly very important among the tribes in the region, the original letter from the Jesuits reported that his elder brother had died and his younger one was now in charge. On the timeline, that was probably Paramount Chief Powhatan, as Bridenbaugh says. Pelopa Cancana was older than Powhatan, Powhatan, and probably either a brother or half-brother. Then, when Pedro Menendez arrived the next year, he took hostages, including another cacique, and demanded the return not only of the boy Alonso, but also Don Luis, The Indians gave up the boy, but not Don Luis, suggesting that he was too important to surrender even in exchange for 20 lives, either by reason of his social rank or because of his special expertise. The alternative explanation, that he had fled, strikes me as implausible. If he had vanished, the Indians would have said so during the hostage negotiations, and that would have been reported in the fairly detailed account we have of that encounter. More interestingly, Breidenbaugh says that Opakankana means, in his Algonquin dialect, he whose soul is white, citing a 1904 paper by William R. Gerard titled The Tapahonic Dialect of Virginia. I found this to be pretty persuasive, even if still circumstantial, until I dug up Girard's paper and found that he translated white to mean immaculate rather than white like, you know, white people. That does not destroy Breidenbaugh's argument, because immaculate might itself be an imperfect translation. It might be a reference to Opa adoption and translation of Christian notions of purity, for example. Or maybe white and immaculate just meant the same thing to the people of the region, as in, that snow is immaculate. It does, however, make me wonder whether Breidenbaugh was playing a little fast and loose with his references to win his Point. Then there were English accounts of rumors that Opa Kankana had come from Mexico, the southwest or the West Indies. All would have been true, at least technically, if he had been Don Luis. These stories derive from accounts of Indian oral histories written down in the late 1600s, long after the fact, so they themselves might be attenuated. Or perhaps they derive from Opa Kankana himself, who late in life may have as so many old people do when the end is near, told his own story to friends and family. By then, it no longer would have mattered to maintain the deception. Indeed, one of the English authors of those stories, Sir William Berkeley, would have had the opportunity to speak with Opa Kankanaugh when the English finally captured him in 1646. The circumstantial evidence doesn't stop there, Don Luis disappears from history after 1571. That wouldn't be terrifically interesting on its own. We don't know of most Indians who died even a few years before the Europeans arrived, except that historians have pieced together various other parts of Paramount Chief Powhatan's family tree. Nearly as I can tell, there's no missing box on the tree for another brother, as the Spanish recorded Don Luis to be, only a Cancana. The main evidence against the theory that Opa Kankanaa was the same man as Don Luis are the various English accounts of encounters with him. Recall that when he captured John Smith, Smith recorded that he showed Opa his compass and that the chief was impressed by it. And then Smith enthralled Opa Kankanaa with his description of the world, the continents, and the stars and their courses. And that, at another point, Opa asked all sorts of questions about English ships, as if he knew nothing of ocean-going vessels. Later, when the English built him a house, it was reported back that he was fascinated by the lock on the door and opened and closed it a hundred times. The argument against this counter-evidence is obvious. If Opa was Don Luis and didn't want the English to know it, He was perfectly capable of pretending astonishment at a European novelty, whether a compass or a lock, that he had seen plenty of times. Don Luis was a young man of extraordinary intelligence and guile, as demonstrated by his rapid acquisition of Spanish and quick grasp of Spanish politics. It's a fact that Don Luis persuaded Philip II to fund an expedition to take him back to the Chesapeake, Even though Philip's own men had told him there was nothing of value there. Don Luis played a 10 year game, pretending to Christianity and working the friars all to get back home, and then turning on the people to whom he had pretended friendship in the most brutal way imaginable. Surely he was not only capable of, but inclined to pretend that he had never seen a compass and didn't know about other continents if he thought it would serve his purpose. Even more certainly, the English, including John Smith, were so condescending in their attitude toward the Indians that they would have been easily taken in by feigned, wide-eyed ignorance. Finally, as we shall soon see, the tactics that Opa used against the English leading up to his War of 1622, pretending friendship, suppressing indignities visited upon him, and lulling the English into complacency over a period of years, were exactly the tactics one might imagine Don Luis deploying in the same situation. If Opa Cancana wasn't Don Luis, he was very well informed by Don Luis, which is why the story of Don Luis in the 1560s is so very relevant to a war that started more than 50 years later. It all ties together. Breidenbaugh's book, Early Americans, is out of print, so his argument has fallen out of favor in the more than 40 years since he advanced it. Then in late 2021, the prolific historian of Jamestown, James Horn, published A Brave and Cunning Prince, The Great Chief Opakankana and the War for America. Horn's book goes much deeper into Opakankana's story and the theory of his identity with Paco Quineo Don Luis, and as a bracing read that I highly recommend. There's a link in the show notes on the website for those of you who want to buy it. Horn expands Breidenbaugh's argument considerably, adding the theory that it was Opa Kankana who was responsible for an expedition to find and kill the survivors of the Roanoke colony, who had integrated with several of the tribes in North Carolina. We covered that story in episode 47, as Apple counts it, Epilogues and Consequences After the Armada and the Lost Colony of Roanoke. I wrote that episode before I had read Horn's book, so I attributed that raid to Powhatan and opa But Horn makes the very plausible case that opa by then Powhatan's war chief, was the moving force. Regardless, long-standing and attentive listeners will know that the Jamestown English heard stories of people who wore English clothes and lived in stone houses from both Powhatan and Opecancanaw, but obviously never found them. One final observation, because I love life's little ironies. Don Luis's maneuverings back in New Spain played some role in frustrating the plan of Pedro Menendez, to send 300 soldiers to establish a settlement at the mouth of the Chesapeake. If the eloquent young Indian persuaded the Jesuits to stop Menendez, he changed the course of European settlement in the region. If Menendez had followed through and succeeded, the odds of the English attempting settlements at either Roanoke or Jamestown would have been reduced to something close to zero. Now that you are all refreshed on the story of Paquiquinio, Don Luis, and Opa We are ready to tackle the Great Chiefs' War of 1622. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.